podcast. Saul Marquez here, and today I have the privilege of hosting Robbie Allen. He's the CEO of Envision Orthopedics and Spine. Robbie got to start studying aerospace and chemical engineering at both Rensselaer and Georgia Techs. He proceeded to study clinical neuroscience and pursued board certification in neurophysiology while founding a company that focused on outsourcing neuroscience needs of hospitals around the world. After growing in excess of 20% per year organically for over 15 years, in 2012, he sold his company called Neuromatrix to Specialty Care Corp, a billion-dollar multi-specialty conglomerate providing a range of clinical services related to the OR around U.S. and Europe. He spent four years running the Southern U.S. operations for specialty care and continued to the board on M&A and business strategy before leaving to pursue a directorship in the telemedical space before it was cool. (laughs) 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 Following several years of private consulting and the world in telemedicine delivery and optimization of care models, he joined the, the Centers for Orthopedic and Spine Care, formerly Spine Center Atlanta, a collection of surgery centers and clinics throughout the Southeast that's actively expanding through domestic and international medical tourism, as well as creatively delivering care to surgical patients via telemedical and on-site methods. As a CEO and a member of board of directors, both jobs he holds currently, he's charged with thinking about the health system of the future, which with the things that we have going on today, the future is today. And having a gentleman like Robbie at the helm focused on where things are going and how we could best serve patients and people, there's some exciting times ahead. So I'm excited to dive into these topics with him. Robbie also speaks French, Spanish, and English and is actively learning Mandarin and Arabic. (laughs) Super interesting guy. Robbie, without further ado, just want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you, Saul. Well, I'm glad to be here. So, man, you have such a cool background, you know, neurophysiology, then you founded a very successful business, got out of it, got into telemedicine. You seem to be ahead of the curve on a lot of the stuff that you do. What is it that made you choose healthcare and what inspires your work in the space? Well, when I was in school studying, originally I wanted to build the next a moon rocket. I wanted to design the next space shuttle. And the Cold War had just ended. And at that point in time, they were that was going to be the end of that sector. So medicine was kind of the next thing to grab my interest. And I, I had the fortune and the misfortune and the luck to get involved in the early days of neurophysiology as it was being delivered in operating rooms, which was one of the first areas of broad use of telehealth. And I think it grabbed my engineering mindset that problems to be solved were significant. You know, we use banks of Hayes 9600 baud modems to try to connect to operating room screens and transmit individual pixel changes to try to economize data. And it was, it was an engineering problem. It was a medical problem. It was on the cutting edge of what we could do. It, was, it just happened to be during the phase of computerization of things and learning that we could automate. And it captured my attention and it, it managed to hold it <laughs> through all of my adult career. So it's been, it's been a really interesting ride. That's really interesting. And I never made the connection, you know, but it, it's there, but you did appreciate you mentioning it. This neurophysiology as sort of one of the first steps toward 
broad-based telemedicine, there has been for a very long time the adoption of a remote neurophysiologist interpreting what's going on in the OR. I'm glad you mentioned that. I hadn't connected those dots. Well, yeah, that's that was my introduction to telehealth. Huh. Yeah. And so I guess now that transition from that to telehealth seems a little more natural now that you kind of dove into that. <laughs> I think that's exactly how it, it worked out for me, is seeing the advantages of using experts delivered remotely and seeing that that could be done effectively, seeing that that could be done in a way that materially added value and also was from a cost standpoint efficient. Um, it's entirely motivated the, the second half of my career. Well, and, and today we're, it's such an interesting time with what's going on with the coronavirus and, and even before this became a big thing with COVID-19, we are on the cusp of digital adoption. And as we were discussing before our, our recording time here, we believe this is kind of going to accelerate it. So g- give, me, give me a little bit of your thoughts on, on how Envision Orthopedics and Spine is, is adding value to the healthcare ecosystem. How is it different? You know, the thing that, that we've been able to do at Envision for a variety of reasons that are structural that we maybe can go into later is we've been able to change the way that people think about seeing an orthopedist or surgery center, for example. You obviously have to do surgery in an operating room for a host of reasons, mm-hmm. but we connect with patients. We're able to work with, diagnose, interact with, update, and follow up with patients remotely. And we're able to do that across six centers that are scattered geographically and across the country and really even the globe for patients in their homes. And we're able to do that with all the levels of providers, both the MD, the mid-levels, and even the interactive, the nursing and and medical assistant care. And it's as simple as as interaction on the iPhone. Um, It can be the computer, it can be many other things. Patients, once they adopt this, it tends to give them much more stickiness to their care plan. Um, We've even adopted that for physical therapy, as well as some things that you don't often think about. And when you consider surgical patients, the post-op care and the post-op mobility training and interaction is one of the biggest predictors of success post-orthopedic surgery. Fascinating. And and so... Engaging patients remotely, orthopedic, spine, rehabilitation, improved adherence is, is certainly something that I think a lot of providers strive for. How is it that you guys are doing it? I mean, how are you doing it, number one? And then number two, what has enabled the success? Because others have tried and not really been successful at it. So two things have enabled us structurally. A huge portion of our patient mix is, curiously enough, CAF or domestic medical tourism, which is, as a payer source, looks a lot like cash, personal injury, which looks a lot like cash. And so because those buckets of patients don't have some of the regulatory hurdles that would ordinarily prevent us from being more creative or, depending on your tact, more aggressive with the use of direct patient contact methods like telemedicine. And we use both our EMR. You know, most EMRs now integrate telemedicine 
directly. There are also third-party platforms like ExamMed, one is one that we use quite frequently, that make it incredibly easy to interact on a video basis with a patient over a secured and sort of HIPAA-approved channel. Those things combined have allowed this to be an interesting lab to see where the boundaries of what we can do exist. There are certainly some patients that are not well suited to doing at-home physical therapy via their iPhone. There are plenty of them that are, and we've learned, for example, that the iPhone is probably not the ideal format for physical therapy, whereas a computer screen or something somewhat larger is. But you're seeing this carry out even into the consumer market. One of the most popular exercise devices is now what amounts to a large telephonic delivery system of an exercise class in the form of a mirror. This is in no questionable way coming. So those things structurally have allowed us to push this out. The corporate structure of our physician and mid-level provider arrangements also facilitates that heavily. It's much more corporate than it is typical medical practice, which means that everybody's kind of aligned on the same incentive plans from top to bottom. Pay, bonuses, care, all of that tends to be done the same way, whether it's at the MA level or the physician level, because everybody's paid on the same reward systems. And that is how well we take care of the patients, as opposed to production RVUs for the physicians, volume of patient scenes for, for mid-levels, things like that, that tend to unwittingly, I think, in healthcare pit people's incentive systems against each other. Yeah, that's super interesting. The, the model sounds very agile. Yes, that's the word. And it's something that we struggle with in our current system. You know, and you called it corporate versus medical plan, provider system, bureaucracy, largely due to the, the cash type of business that you guys run. Very insightful. Was this customer type of structured into the model or is that how it started? And then because of it, you guys were able to evolve. So I did not inherit the, or I did inherit the patient mix by and large, although I will say that the use of widespread domestic and international medical tourism is a growing phenomenon related to increasing deductibles and total cost of care underneath that umbrella amount. So that's relatively new and that I've watched happen over my tenure. But those things sort of predated me. I think the early experimentation based on what I've learned about the company's history, and it's old, it's been around for almost 30 years, is that it was a decision consciously to try to serve certain segments of the market that were more cash oriented, even to the level of something like a membership program of, okay, we'll pay $100 a month. And that kind of gives you certain levels of access to care, significantly predating the concierge medicine effect. And again, much like tablets and things like that, I think the, the practice was probably a little too far ahead of that curve. And so the patient mix we have today, though, is a conscious choice of avoiding the bureaucracy that goes with and the high, just the high churn and volumes associated with a pure or a 70% Medicare practice that, you know, it's, it's 45 patients a day per provider and it's, it's entirely down to the 10th of an RVU management we've structured it a little bit differently. It definitely sounds like it, Robbie. And, and so 
Walk us through how you guys are improving outcomes and business success with the model that you have going on here. Certainly. The things we know about health, you know, the typical surgical practice is entirely around volume. It's, you know, we know that we operate on 5% of the patients that come through the door. Therefore, we need it's funnel management, if you were to use corporate language. Mm-hmm. And in our world, we've kind of turned that around and said, if we looked at our patient population, which is fairly stable, the new number of monthly patients, and we thought about them as acute care in the orthopedic setting, which generally speaking, our patients are, we don't do a lot of the chronic long-term management of knee arthritic conditions and things like that. It tends to be acute injury, which was a specifically designed sector we decided to enter into. If we looked at those and decided what's the best care plan for them, and we look at treating them across a 90-day arc, and so plenty of patients deviate from that arc, but if we kind of bucketed their treatment into bringing them in and assessing and getting the right things that they needed at that point, and moving them through the arc in a very conscious way, the use of telemedicine and the use of sort of non-traditional interaction allows that to move fairly quickly through this arc. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, somebody who's going to have a significant spine procedure scheduled at day 89 is not done with care in 90 days. That's, uh, but we've moved them through this diagnostic and treatment plan arc that lets us fairly cognitively look at what we want to do with these patients and what we want their ultimate outcome to be, which is always we want them better, or at least to the the best level they can be when we're done treating them. And so that focus, that kind of relentless focus on moving patients through is what's driven internally our adoption of these non-traditional sort of interaction methods. And it's turned out to work really, really well. The patient satisfaction has gone through the roof. Patients love being able to reach out and interact directly almost on demand with providers when they're in that care arc. Each patient is assigned sort of a, an internal uh, medical manager that sort of manages their care through the system. And a liaison is what we would call them. It sort of manages the patient's care delivery through their arc, checks in with the providers. Hey, we haven't heard from Mr. Allen and 60 days and and he just had an epidural injection and nobody's responding. You know, we should, we should try to check back in with them. Who's reached out, you know, what's the care plan look like there, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, so tell me that it's it's very, it's very interesting and, and I appreciate the approach. How does your coverage work as far as like geographic coverage, right? Because we, you know, we've got, you know, health leaders, business leaders listening to this, you guys are, are based in Georgia, but tell me a little bit about coverage and how this remote capability potentially enables your coverage beyond the geography that you're based in, or can you go further? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay. We, we're certainly based in the what I would call the traditional Southeast. Atlanta is the, the headquarters of the operation, certainly the largest physical facility. South Carolina, Florida, Tennessee, and Alabama tends to be the nucleus of the catchment area for a variety of reasons, um, both clinical locations in those areas, but also easy proximity to physical access. Mm-hmm. I will say that about 10% of our patients come from widely outside that area. Internationally, okay. it has grown from about 1% two years ago. 
for two reasons. One is certainly the employer-directed care. You know, you have right. large companies like Google and Amazon that offer incentives for employers, employees to go to single points of care. The other is just simply direct marketing, kind of in the way that other large centers like formerly LSI used to do, although much more targeted. Um, one sector of what we do is failed back syndrome, and we mm-hmm. do it one of the, the orthopedic surgeons particularly loves doing that. And it's not a sector that I would say a lot of people enjoy. And so we bring in people from all over the world for that. Hmm. Um, and their word of mouth then trickles out to friends, family, and things like that. So the geographic catchment area is theoretically unlimited. The remote capability, though, and I'm glad you asked, is uh, regulated state to state with, with very little national oversight, much like medical licensing, which is the driver behind what, what does this. So you need technically dual licensure, except in certain states that offer reciprocity. So Mm -hmm. your physicians need to be licensed both in Georgia or South Carolina and the state that a patient is sitting in. And so that can be cumbersome. And that limits the scope and scale of national footprint rollout on a rapid basis. Something I learned early on with neurophysiology in the operating rooms, you know, physician licensure, it took us on average three years to license a uh, remote reading physician in all 50 states. That's a, it's, it's a long and drawn out pro- process. Definitely. <laughs> you're seeing more companies now though, right? I mean, you're seeing larger companies that are more corporate start to really do this, right? I mean, some that come to mind, you know, 98.6, more on the primary care side or, uh, one medical, right? They're starting to do something interesting. Uh, or, I mean, they've been at it, but you know, have you thought about potentially partnering with some of these existing footprints to to offer them and their patient base an orthopedic specialty? That's exactly what's currently going on. Um, some of it I can't really talk about, sure, um, just because of the players involved. But that is, I think that's absolutely some of where I see the next steps in healthcare evolving. I mean, you have very large players in this space. Um, Teladoc, by way of example. I mean, you have huge public companies that are invested. You can team health to massively get involved in this. America, right? I mean, there's just a bunch of Yep. That's cool, Robbie. And, and, you know, it's neat that you guys are thinking of it. And as we think about partnerships – in the new era of healthcare, this is what it's going to be. It's the conglomeration of people that are already there, like you guys, with other companies to offer both primary care and specialty. I think that's accurate. I think once you start getting some of the arcane regulatory issues that have prevented healthcare from enjoying what let's just frankly call it what it is, just best business practices. Right. Other industries enjoy. Once you kind of move those out of the way and look at making them more meaningful to the care and health of people, these types of partnerships, I think definitely spell the, the forward looking answers for a whole host of issues that face healthcare from provider shortages in rural areas or all over. And there's just, there's, 
plenty of real issues that are real because of geography, but not real because of numbers. Fascinating, Robbie. You know, uh, one of the things that, uh, and you know, it'd be a good discussion. I mean, you're you're a thought leader in the space. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? On those regulatory hurdles, cross state lines to provide telemedicine. I, I've heard on the one hand, it's you know, states wanting to collect license fees. I, I've heard just uncertainty about how the policy would work. What are your thoughts there? You know, we've managed to solve this for overland trucking, for airline industries, for basically every business except education and healthcare. And education is massively being disrupted right now. Mm-hmm. And I think healthcare, somewhat by force, and healthcare is next. But in t- terms of sort of national medical databasing of practitioner licensing, um, distributed licensing fees uh, based on practice locations. It's not hard to see that the physician of the future in many specialties will be entirely distributed. It's not hard to see a neurologist routinely looking at patients in 20 states. Mm -hmm. So the licensure aspects of that are going to have to change around fee distribution, which is one aspect. Um, Control is another. The the existing systems have the capability to look at quality of care delivered, the basic metrics of whether or not we want to license somebody. But it's as simple as looking at physician mobility. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at Merritt Hawkins, they're talking about 12 to 18% physician job changing. That's, 20 years ago, that would have been, <laughs> frankly, a, a staggering number. It was yeah. 2 to 3%. And I think you're just seeing medicine begin to evolve into a system by which we as the public engage for our health and wellness, as opposed to a system that kind of served itself in many ways. Yeah. No, that's, a, that's an interesting perspective, Robbie. And Back to your point of increasing deductibles and and now the actual consumer of healthcare having to take ownership, uh, more hands-on ownership and start to make decisions rather than just giving the decisions to the employer. Uh, A lot of that has to do with it too. And it's a great opportunity, certainly exciting. And, you know, you're, you're one of the first, I mean, maybe even the first uh, orthopedic specialty group that I know of that's doing this? I think we are. There are certainly, depending on who you ask, I think I think orthopedists consider themselves as a rule fairly progressive. I think I would argue that from a medical care delivery standpoint, it's it's not overly progressive. But this is the part of this that I have been excited about from day one. Mm-hmm. And that is that every specialty can alter structurally how we do this and ultimately drive down to a direct consumer market that even if it's mitigated by third-party insurance or governmental insurance, that really doesn't matter. But the choice and the interaction really and the value creation can begin to share between the ultimate consumer and the provider without so much of the middle uh, and the middle is made up of lots of things, insurance, regulations, facilities, structure, you name it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting times, <laughs> that's for sure. So w- what would you say has been one of the biggest setbacks you've experienced? And what, what was a key learning that came from that? 
I've had lots and I think, I think anybody who hasn't had them has not been in business long. We've run up against huge problems with patient compliance um, mm-hmm. early on, um, it, particularly in the, from a standpoint of telemedicine. You, know, you think it should work one way, and we have this problem. The, the, the thing that we interact with is a human being that has its own, they have their own life, and they have their own things going on. And just because it's what we think doesn't mean it's what they think. And that's fairly humbling when you start to look at that from a business standpoint and try to model out what's going to happen. It doesn't behave that way. <laughs> so right. you have to build in the accounting for that. And that's that's proven probably the single biggest compound over the history of my career in virtual medicine. The patient is one of the biggest confounds in the system. And instead of throwing your hands up in the air and running away from that, what I've learned to do is try to embrace that. Mm-hmm. And let's look at how, and I think when you look at successful telemedical companies, that's exactly what they're doing. Is they're saying, this is, it's not a thing to be changed, it is. So yeah. let's work with it. Let's see how we use it. And it, it's it been at times uh, incredibly humbling, but I think I will say also, you asked about orthopedics. I wouldn't say orthopedics is a terribly flexible by nature profession. And so learning to adjust in this very way with patients, that has also been a significant hurdle. You know, this is a group of providers who are incredibly competitive, incredibly bright, used to being busy and making decisions. And, you know, when you suddenly flip the paradigm and say, we need to be responsive to our customer and ask what they want, it doesn't always go the way that you would hope. And, you know, I could imagine, <laughs> I mean, it's definitely an issue and, uh, and, and I appreciate you being honest, you know, and just kind of putting it out there because it's true. And in order for us to make those leaps forward, we have to embrace those challenges. And, and, and so that flexibility and, and I go back to that Darwin quote, right, Robbie, you know, it's not the strongest or the smartest, it's the most adaptable that survived. And uh, it goes right back to that. And so um, kudos to you and and the work that your leadership team and and the group is doing to be forward thinking and adaptable, because it's certainly something that we all need. And we appreciate uh, your leadership and the leadership of your group. Well, thank you. No, I enjoy. I enjoy learning from everybody from both your show, others uh, and reading. I think it's a it is just an exciting time. So on that excitement note, what do you think is the most exciting thing today? You know, I I think the exciting thing today is in a very unfortunate way, you've got an event that's causing people to rethink everything. And when that happens, I think it draws attention to what works and what doesn't. And the risk is that we don't learn from it. I think that probably is going to not be the outcome. So I think it's just going to continue on long enough that we're going to have to learn from it. Mm-hmm. So that creates a lot of opportunity for us to fix so much of what isn't really working well. And there'll be a lot of smart people who will want this to be fixed in a way that meaningfully changes things going forward. And there's, look, let's be, let's be absolutely direct. Healthcare is 
a nearly $4 trillion aspect of our economy that is woefully complex. Mm-hmm. But there are pieces of this, if we can keep attention focused, that we can really do things about quickly that make good sense. You know, post-depression, people started making really good common sense judgment calls. And that's largely, in my opinion, some of what medicine needs is some good common sense calls that can move things forward for all of us. What a great call out, Robbie. <laughs> well said. I love it. And the risk, everyone, is is that we don't learn from this. And so we could think about this systemically, but the true difference comes about when you think about it in your own company, in your own practice, the risk is that we don't learn from this. And so uh, the call out here is let's take these lessons and make some common sense <laughs> changes that work to help us get that, that those results uh, meaningfully in a lasting way. Robbie, this has been a ton of fun. Before we close it out, I'd love if you could just leave us with the just closing thought and, and the best place that the listeners could continue the conversation with you guys. You know, I think you opened it. One of my favorite words, and it's one of the things that I look at in executives that I hire. It's one of the things that I try to instill in corporate boards I'm on, and that is agility. Mm. Um, and I think what we're all getting a powerful lesson in today is the system is so big and complex that we've lost agility, both of thought. Agility requires information. It requires processing information. It requires humility. It requires responding and not reacting. Um, but it requires doing that in a timely manner. And it's one of my favorite words. It's one of my favorite philosophies. And I think the more we're able to drive everybody to thinking about caring for people in an agile way, the more it naturally can sort decision-making for everybody. It's going gonna, it's gonna to improve the system immensely if we can just build in 10, 15% agility and efficiency. Man, so that's awesome. I agree. I agree. And that's, uh, it is a great word. I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> and in practice, it's even better, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Ravi, you know, I didn't ask you, and I always like to ask, uh, what book you rec- would recommend to the listeners? In terms of uh, a reading book? Yeah, a book to read. Um, Something you enjoy or that's influenced you and your, your thinking? So recently I've had almost all of my management team reading um, one of Brene Brown's books, which is, um, I had them all read Daring Greatly Hmm. because empathy is the key inoculation to all of us communicating well. Um, part of the division that we have is born out of an inability to face-to-face empathize with the fact that you might disagree with me and where, where would that come from? Mm -hmm. And she's done a lot of research and, and sort of shame, you know, she's made her name in terms of being famous for research around shame. Um, Every business meeting I've been in is entirely personal and it's everybody's individual agendas. It's everybody's individual egos and her philosophies in that come out of 
let's acknowledge those. And let's, instead of saying this is business, not personal, let's go ahead and at least acknowledge those, those factors are in the room. And in healthcare in particular, I think we expect it out of nurses on the floor. And I think we expect it to be absent in the physicians and executives, hmm. which is again, back to alignment and agility. Whenever the alignment of incentives, both monetary and otherwise are out of whack, it's not going to go well. And so that's kind of my, that's my current book with my management team. Love it. Great, great recommendation. Appreciate you sharing that. And Brene Brown is it's dare to lead. Uh, dare to lead. Yeah. Fantastic. Or no, excuse me. Daring, excuse me, not dare to lead. Daring greatly. Oh, daring. Wait, you know what? I'm thinking of her other one, dare to lead. Her other one is yes. <laughs> okay. But yours is daring greatly. That's one I'll yes. have to pick up. Awesome. Awesome. And folks, uh, you know where to go. Outcomesrocket.health. In the search bar, type in Robbie, R-O-B-B-I-E, Allen. And you'll see our entire show notes, a transcript, links to, to, to their company and uh, the practice that they lead. And also links to the book that uh, Robbie just recommended. So check those out there. Robbie, this has been a a blast. I really appreciate it. And and uh, really, kind of last last question is where where can the folks reach out to you if they have further questions or or want to explore uh, an opportunity to collaborate? Oh, I, I welcome it. Um, my email uh, is I'll I'll give my more public facing email. Sure, is Robbie underscore Allen, it's R-O-B-B-I-E, underscore A-L-L-E-N, at mac.com, M-A-C.com. Please feel free to reach out. I love collaboration. I love kind of talking through the tough problems because if we don't talk about the tough problems, we're not going to get anywhere. Love that. And I think, folks, you've seen that through our candid discussion with Robbie today. So take action. If you feel there's an opportunity, don't wait. Because if you wait, you're probably not going to do it. Uh, Robbie, appreciate you jumping on with us today. This has been uh, truly a lot of fun and excited to see where you guys take this. Awesome. Well, thank you, Saul. It's been a pleasure. Truly enjoyed it. And big shout out to your, your podcast, your listeners, and everybody involved.